From global design practice Hassel, this is Hassel Talks, a podcast series looking at a changing and complex world and the opportunities for design to create a better place for everyone. It's a series that is unashamedly optimistic about creating a beautiful, inclusive and resilient future. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, their elders past and present as traditional owners of the land of Nam or Melbourne, where I live, work and play, and pay my respects to their First Nations people across Australia as custodians of these lands. I'm Jeremy Schluter. I'm an architect and I co-lead the residential sector at Hassel, which means I spend a lot of time thinking about how we live and how we can live better. They say there's no place like home. For many in Australia right now, there literally is no place to call home. Put simply, we are around 1 million homes short of what we need to have enough shelter for the current and expected population growth. We're not alone with this challenge, of course. Cities in Sweden, Germany, Greece, Ireland and France are all experiencing an acute rental shortage. No surprises that in an absence of options for housing, the housing affordability crisis places incredible pressure on markets, one part of a cost of living crisis impacting both buyers and renters. The market is ready, desperately so, to see alternatives to housing that will ease this challenge. To explain what I mean by housing alternatives, 10 years ago we thought homes could only be a house in the suburb or an apartment in a tower in the city. And now we know there's an entire spectrum There are more ways to live now, from townhouses to subdivided housing units, to public affordable private investor rentals, build-to-rent, premium owner-occupier apartments, and increasingly quality apartment options specifically targeting families and the first home buyer. If you live in Melbourne, you may have heard of Nightingale and Assemble's build-to-rent-to-own model that do just that. Intersecting these is an eager, educated market who knows design, They know about sustainability and climate challenges. They've lived through the pandemic, so they need to be able to work comfortably from home with a supportive community around them. They also desire green space and amenities. So could we be on the cusp of a whole new range of housing alternatives? Is the housing crisis leading us to embrace new design solutions for our homes and cities? I wanted to pick the brains of a couple of people right in the thick of this. People and organisations exploring and investing in alternative housing models to see just how much this housing crisis is leading to new design solutions for our cities. Michael McCormack is the co-founder and managing director behind small but mighty development firm Milieu. Milieu's reputation for crafting beautifully conceived apartments that are sustainable, quality homes for people has resulted in a bit of a following in cities such as Melbourne and Sydney, with Milieu's buildings gaining fans, awards and accolades. Just don't call them a luxury developer. Milieu have built a strong reputation as one of the good guys. Their projects are driven by a strong social conscience and embedded in their local communities, which you'll hear about in this episode. I am lucky enough to work with Milieu and Mike in Hassel's design for Otter Place by Milieu, 28 residential apartments in the heart of Collingwood, currently under construction. We'll pop a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Milieu's work to me enriches the argument that inner city living results in viable, appropriate and sustainable options, and the success here has the potential to influence all new design solutions. I started by asking Mike about the appetite out there for the milieu approach. What has he noticed about the common threads connecting people and projects? 
overwhelmingly the people that look to our projects uh, have a strong interest in design and passion for design and kind of appreciation of design. I, I would say if, that there's a, there's, a, there's a social mindedness to them as well, for sure. Um, but there's kind of various ends of the spectrum, but just generally there'd be a, a social conscience, people that are purchasing our property. So there's an interest in the social initiatives that we do, but also environmental policies and environmental performance of the projects. I'd say that they are usually quite astute and mature uh, and kind of want a sense of providence and a sense of uh, uniqueness in, in kind of their homes. For us, we're super aware that the number one decision about where people choose to live is not the building that they're living in, it's kind of the area that they're living in. Um, and they're choosing an area um, based on, I guess, a whole bunch of things, but often to do with the culture within the area and the community within the area. So we're super aware that we benefit greatly from the community and the culture within that area, and it's to our benefit to kind of foster that and contribute to that. So we do a bunch of things. We have a hospitality business which kind of works long after we've been developing the property. It continues to foster community and contribute to community through the ground plane of our buildings. We also work with local arts organisations um, like CCP, who's in Fitzroy, um, and, and kind of support them and contribute to them. Um, through our hospitality business, we have a, um, a for-purpose initiative called Open Kitchen, which um, at least it was kind of born out of COVID where we were looking to provide meals for people that um, had lost their jobs or, or, or didn't have any support, um, and that's continued on. Um, we are a certified B Corporation, which has a whole bunch of social initiatives as part of our um, commitment to that certification. It's a really quite interesting relationship as a property developer, recognising uh, all the juxtaposition between um, what we do uh, and First Nations, and we're aware of that, but we look to kind of respond to that through um, the scheme paying the rent. That social element is is really important and um it's certainly one of the things we've noticed of the work that um that you guys do um is taking responsibility for the culture the community and the social um legacy of each of those buildings each of those places because too often we see you know a 7-eleven or a nail salon or a vacant shop <laughs> left on the ground plane of some of these uh, some of some residential developments are oh, completely most build to sell developments are sold off the plan and they're sold through beautiful brochures um, and developers put a lot of work into preparing amazing renders and amazing collateral as part of that they, they produce these amazing renders of wine bars and cafes and stuff like that but what they're focusing on is selling the predominant part of the building which is everything above ground floor and they often forget about the, the small sort of 100, 150 square metre space at ground floor. But that space does so much to contribute to the community um, and can be such a positive, but also if you get it wrong, negative part of kind of the development. We're also aware that um, that space, if you don't own one of our buildings or, or own one of our apartments or know someone that does, it might be the only thing that you interact with. So it might be the only time that we have an opportunity to kind of present um, a positive light from, from a brand perspective. So, yeah, for us, it's a it's a super important space and we put a lot of effort into our ground plane. 
what do you think they're increasingly looking for um, lately in response to, there's obviously a lot of trends impacting the housing market at the moment. Um, the pandemic is um, a bit of history, but it's still, I think, impacting our homes and what people are looking for. There's also the cost of living crisis, rising inflation, energy costs, um, and housing affordability. And I know there's a lot in there, but are there some kind of common themes and threads that people are looking for more so these days? I think you touched on a lot of it just then, but kind of tackling some of it. Um, an attainable house for sure, like um, good quality home. We're not a luxury developer by any means. We never want to be a luxury developer. We certainly have seen off the back of COVID a real um, desire to have space and even kind of your own space. A number of people that um, have, have been looking at our apartments most recently potentially have been renting um a share house or with friends and they're looking to buy an apartment now to have their own sense of space and if they owned a place and they were um, in an apartment they're certainly now looking for more space and particular spaces that they can use during the day obviously kind of a study is a big one for working from home but a sense of community um, we're seeing absolutely and not not a forced community but a sort of a a, a casual community, like a, a not organised events necessarily, but sort of knowing that you have a neighbour and you can run into them in the hallway and, yeah, just that, that idea of casual community I think is a really kind of compelling thing at the moment after we've all been kind of um, spent a lot of time away from each other. Here's a big topic. How do you think the changing face of the great Australian dream um, and the housing affordability challenge is influencing the future of Australian housing, living and or the residential market? When we started, we started uh, in response to that, um, trying to provide attainable homes for people um, and good quality attainable homes. Um, but we were looking at it from an owner-occupier perspective. Then over the course of the last five years, project scale is typically got smaller, focused on owner-occupiers, but most recently there is a new type of development built to rent, which has kind of increased the scale and it's um, focused on um, renters like those projects were in, in a sense. Um, but in this case, I feel like it's a much better outcome and much more quality outcome because it's um, it's um, the owners are, are also kind of a single entity focused on delivering a great outcome for renters. They have to. In some ways, I feel like it's been a challenge um, and it's been a lot for people to get their heads around this kind of evolving idea of the house with the picket fence and the home ownership. But in some ways, um, as the challenge evolves, it has opened up new housing options, new housing alternatives and new housing models and innovations, um, particularly in Australia, that that have meant that there's more choice out there for how people want to live, where they want to live. Um, and I think in some ways that's quite exciting. Oh, I completely agree. Like I can imagine a world um, now um, off the back of COVID and the advances in technology, both from working from home but also autonomous vehicles and built to rent and, and all the things that are sort of going on in the not-too-distant future. I, I can see people having a, a property in the city that they don't own but they rent as well as a property that might be more affordable regionally um, and kind of um, spending time working from that regional property because that's so much more able to be done now, commuting when they need to commute through an autonomous vehicle, which is, again, I don't feel like it's that far away, and then staying in Melbourne at their rental of property. Um, yeah, I think 
uh, it's exciting in terms of the, the the advancements and the again the challenges that have created opportunities through COVID, but also the advancements in technology. And that was about changing from the demand for a home to being able to convince the market that you can get all of that closer in in an apartment if the apartment is high enough quality. Yeah, definitely. I think sort of housing is becoming really um, expensive to build um, and property buying land is becoming really expensive to build. So the response to kind of the response to that is higher density housing and, and and as that becomes more accepted and a more mature market, hopefully the, the, the market will push us to deliver really great quality higher density housing and then we need to focus on all the spaces outside of the housing that kind of one of my favourite places and maybe this is because I've been a tourist when I've been there but I love Paris because um, it has all of uh, has really quite great kind of if you if you live in the middle of Paris you live probably in an apartment um, and it's a very consistent five level height there's not a lot of high rise it's just a very consistent five level height but there is a lot of kind of um, amenity people use there's not so much internal amenity within apartments except there is kind of those large private courtyard areas but I think that idea of that um, shared civic amenity um, is such an important attribute of higher density living. So one, I guess that the idea of apartment living, I think that's certainly um, matured and people are becoming more comfortable with the idea of living in apartments. But the idea of owning your own home and that might be an apartment certainly still has its challenges. And I think the idea of creating better rental properties that have security of tenure and are like owning your own home, you can do things with them like like um, that you would if you owned the property and uh, kind of giving people the flexibility and I guess the the freedom around that is, is the future of, uh, I guess, residential living, particularly in the cities, I feel. Where do you think sustainability fits in these days it's not what we lead with it's a it's a pillar of our projects but that doesn't mean that it's not super important um it's just not all that we are um i think there's there's particular brands um outside of development but also in development that have that kind of as their lead um and and I think we, if you look at what we do from a sustainability perspective, the type of work that we're doing uh, is on on parallel with their work from a sustainability credentials perspective. But it's not it's not what we lead with. So we we kind of have a saying or a, 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 an approach to sustainability as sustainability is standard. Um, it, it should be standard in all projects and it should be um, a really important part, but it shouldn't be, it's, it's not an amazing thing to have a sustainable building. It just should be done. Um, and we try and focus on kind of like the big moves in buildings, not the not the add-ons and not kind of the fancy things, but getting the building right from the outset. In some ways, I'd almost argue that that is... Um not a revolutionary, but a, um, a unique and progressive way to look at sustainability, where it should be a fundamental, it should be a baseline, it shouldn't be something that separates um, or, or, or is, is unique. Oh, absolutely. Like, I feel like um, to what I was talking about before, about how amazing kind of 
developers are packaging up projects these days. One of the parts of that in particular markets um, is an arms race on sustainability. And I think it's all about star ratings and and just sort of a checklist of things that you can put in your brochure that you're doing. Um, but yeah, often um, it's the stuff that you that is not easily described in a brochure that's kind of the big moves in a project that's just as important. Part of the problem of build-to-sell development is, um, but also what can um, lead to great change and kind of be a real strength is that it's 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 purchaser-led. It's certainly kind of developers are driven by the market and selling apartments, and um, there's definitely a growing consciousness or conscience uh, around um, sustainability. Um, so I think it's it's in a pretty good spot. Um, I, I, I'd like to see, and it's certainly a, a policy of ours, no gas uh, in, in residential buildings. It's not required, um, and it's kind of one of the very big moves that you can do to improve the sustainability credentials of your projects, and it's certainly something that's um, absolutely a policy of ours. Um, and then beyond that, I think um, cars, cars, with like um, this obsession with cars, all of our projects are in um, literally you could walk to the city of the project that you and I are doing together, mate, in, in Collingwood. Um, you, people, people love the convenience of the car, but my bet is at Otter Street when people purchase um, there, most of the week they're not using their car. Um, so how do you how do you create uh, an opportunity for them to feel comfortable not to have a car when they still on the weekend might want access to a car? So I'd love to see more developments um, with share cars um, within the developments that allow people to kind of uh, have access to an um, electric vehicle, um, but not necessarily own a car themselves when it's just sitting in a in a car park five days a week. I think one of the interesting challenges, conversations around the car is uh, we know cities and um, planners want um, all basement parking and they don't want any parking above ground. But we're seeing some developers push back on that with providing flexible mobility hubs above ground that can be converted um, uh, in, in a few years um, based on actual user demand, more possible in a built to rent project um, where you can monitor use and if they're not getting used you can you know uh, tweak the size of your car park hard to do in a basement yeah i think it's really interesting like we a couple of our projects we've been kind of forward looking and and working with our design team around what those spaces might be in the future um because buildings are here for a long time and um i don't think it's that far away between kind of autonomous cars and um, less people owning cars and then you've got all these basements that um, need to have alternate uses so how do you create something for those spaces or kind of can you kind of think about that now so that they can be used in a different way in 20 years is there someone or, or a developer or a designer or a project that you're not involved in um, that you think is is doing that really well and is pushing the residential market, you know, the future of our homes um, in the right direction? Oh, completely. Like, I'm an uh, absolutely, I'm a huge supporter and fan of other developers' work um, to the point where we started, we actually started this initiative called Building Better Cities. 
Um, and it was born out of um, a, a number of friends of mine, uh, architects, just because I spend all day at work and therefore I, my friends are uh, <laughs> the kind of the people that I hang out with. Um, and I We're also great along. people, but... <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> no. Of course. <laughs> so I go along to these um, architecture awards or architecture evenings and what I saw was such a like a collegial, collaborative, supportive um, bunch of people that would get excited about about each other's projects and kind of provide input and support. Um, and I was, I was kind of like, why doesn't that exist in the development industry um, on a scale that like it does in, in, the, in the architecture world? Um, and I kind of came to the conclusion that, developers are we're all bloody competitive um super competitive in what we do and you kind of want the commercial edge in everything that you're doing because it is very competitive you've got to buy sites and you've got to find the edge so we, we're pretty closed and we don't share but i've been following a number of developers both you know in melbourne in australia uh but also overseas that kind of inspired me. And I reached out to a number of these developers outside of Australia because I thought, well, they're not competing against us. So therefore, everyone's probably more comfortable to share. Also, like share some of the challenges that they had, be kind of open and honest about the challenges they had, but also kind of share projects and what's worked well. Um, and to my surprise, a number of the developers that I'd followed and, and loved for some time, they were really keen to be a part of this initiative. So what we do is we catch up once a month or so and we share with each other. It's kind of like a counselling session almost, it feels at times, where we kind of <laughs> yeah, we talk about... A developer's talk, shed. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. We talk about the projects that we've got on, some of the challenges, what's worked well, but we also inspire each other and some of some of the work. So the, the, the people that are a part or the groups that are a part of that... Uh, um, there's a group out of Brooklyn that is kind of pretty similar in nature in terms of they're very localised to us called Alloy. There's a really amazing creative developer um, out of BC in Canada um, called Arise. Uh, and in the UK, there's another developer called Parabola that um, is part of that group. But Melbourne, Melbourne, um, probably maybe because I know the market so well, but also I think Melbourne has bred a really great cohort of developers. Um, we're working with Neo Metro, we've just finished a project with Neo Metro. Um, and yeah, they were, they kind of inspired me when I first started our business. And I think they're still doing great work. Um, I think Nightingale, um, do amazing work and really push, um, all of us to improve on many levels. Developers, it's there's such a negative connotation um, about developers. Even like I was surfing this morning out at um, Tullamarine, the, the surf park out there, um, and someone asked me what I did, and I always feel a bit odd saying I'm a property developer. It, it, it's sort of you just you, the, the conversation doesn't usually usually go past that point, um, or very far at least often. Um, and it's the perception is that we all kind of wear blue pinstripe suits and are looking at Excel spreadsheets with dollar signs on them. But for us, um, yeah, we, we try and think about it differently and change the perception of developers. We, we really feel that what we do is kind of creative and it's kind of, we, we call it creative development. And we feel like we're part of the creative process rather than kind of a, a director of it or, a, or kind of just instructing our, our, our um, collaborators that we work with. Um, so I guess, yeah, we're certainly trying to change the, the perception of developers. 
It's been a couple of months since I recorded this chat with Mike, and these challenges are certainly still front and centre of the property debate. The continued global complexities and cost of living challenges do seem destined to stick around, for now at least. But the opportunities are also just as relevant. With so many housing alternatives to consider, housing alternatives that do a better job of sustainability, community connection, providing green spaces and better living outcomes, the future looks bright. In a discerning market when costs are tight, quality, design and scrutiny over what people are buying and renting has never been more important. Delivering quality housing with humanity will provide real choices and confidence to the community, a housing future that designs better cities and enriches lives. Our next chat in this Housing Futures series looks to that larger city scale and some of those real housing choices in a bit more detail, so look out for that one coming soon. Thanks to Mike for his time, his investment into providing quality housing and his enthusiasm in this topic. And thanks to you, our listeners. We know you're as passionate about the role design plays in creating a beautiful, resilient and inclusive future as we are. I'm Jeremy Schluter. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. This episode was produced by Prue Vincent.